Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah chapter 24, and we're also going to look at chapter 25 uh, as well this evening. Topic is a vision of the end for Judah. It's a vision of the end for Judah. Now chapter 24 is a short chapter, and it's, it's not connected to chapter 25 as far as the flow of thought is concerned. In the chapters before chapter 24, we had Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, in his last months as king, asking Jeremiah for help. And then we heard God's response to, 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 to that request. But in chapter 24 here, we're going to see that we're now in the days that followed the exile of the king who immediately followed Zedekiah, which is Jeconiah. So we go back about maybe 10 years or so, and we come out of chapter 23 and enter into chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, we go even further back in time, about 17 to 18 years before chapter 24, and I'm sure you're really getting confused now, into the reign of King Jehoiakim in his fourth year as king. But keep in mind that the book of Jeremiah and, and you know, some parts of the Bible, they're not arranged in chronological order. And then now, when we get to chapter 25, we're going to see next time that God is going to punish Babylon after 70 years of letting them win and conquer. In 597 BC, the Babylonians deported King Jeconiah, along with many of the upper class and key citizens, leaving only the poorer people to work the land. So it was the beginning of the end for Judah. And that's probably why Jeremiah was so troubled. So now we're going to see what follows in chapter 24. The Lord knew Jeremiah needed some encouragement, so he gives Jeremiah a vision. We're going to read all of chapter 24, and then we'll come back and, and you know, review it. Chapter 24, it says, the Lord, Jeremiah speaking, says, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, or the upper class, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, that is, those figs that, were, that were, uh, would grow in, and were uh, in the early part of the year. Like the figs that at first are first ripe, and the other basket had uh, very bad figs, which could not be eaten uh, because they were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people." And I will be their God, for they, shall be, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord. 
So will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue or remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. He says, I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So Jeremiah is given this vision. He sees a couple of baskets of figs in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs. The other basket had very bad figs that nobody could eat. And then the Lord explains the vision to Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, the good figs represent the exiles who had just been taken to Babylon. And the bad figs, they represented King Zedekiah and his officials and the survivors who remained in the land or who had fled to Egypt. He says to Jeremiah, what do you do with rotten figs? Well, you reject them. You throw them away. What do you do with good figs? You keep them and you enjoy them. God promised to take care of the exiles and to work in their hearts. And one day, he would bring them back into their land. Jeremiah even wrote a letter to the exiles in chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. And he tells them to live peaceably in the land where he's going to send them and to seek the Lord with all of their hearts. And he said, I'm sending you to this foreign land in captivity for your good. But there was no future, on the other hand, for King Zedekiah, who had succeeded Jeconiah, or for the nobles that gave him such foolish counsel. But there was a future for a godly remnant that would seek the Lord with all of their hearts. In times when nations are in calamity, when there's a nationwide calamity, no matter how discouraging the circumstances might be, God doesn't desert his faithful remnant. Rebels are scattered and they're destroyed. But true believers find God to be faithful to meet their needs and carry out his wonderful plans. The people who returned to the land after their captivity, they weren't perfect by any means. But they had learned to trust the true and the living God and to not worship idols. So if the captivity did nothing else at all, at least it cleansed the Jewish people of worshiping idols. The destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah, they weren't accidents. They were appointments because God was in control. And now the land would enjoy its Sabbaths. And the people exiled in Babylon would have time to repent and to seek the Lord. Far away in Babylon, God the potter would remake his people as it was said in chapter 18. And they would return to the land disciplined and cleansed. Now, as we know in Hebrews, it says, you know, when, when we're going through that discipline process, when we're in that, ta- that, that place of, of, of being chastened by the Lord, it's no fun. It's painful. But afterwards, the writer of Hebrews says, it will be, there will be a peaceful result of right living for those who are trained in this way by God's discipline. So now let's look at chapter 25. Chapter 25 tells us Jehoiakim... The son of Josiah was on the throne. He was a very different king. He was very different from his godly father, Josiah. He, in 2 Kings 24.4, it says, He, speaking of Jehoiakim, filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. 
Jeremiah, Jeremiah makes this very important accusation beginning in chapter 5, 25, verse 1. Look what it says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jeremiah gave this message in about 605 B.C., the year that Nebuchadnezzar came to power. And from verse 3, we learn that the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry was 627 B.C. He predicted the 70 years of captivity, a full 20 years before it started. Look at verses 2 and 3. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year, notice, in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. He said, when the Lord called me, you know, when, Lord, when Jeremiah was called, he was just a child. So nobody would listen to him. They figured that he was about 17 years old at that time. Now he says here in verses, uh, verse 23, 23 years later, he's about 40 years old. He's still speaking all of this time. And he says in verse 3, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you. It's really for 23 years, rising and speaking, but you have not listened. Can you imagine all that time he has been preaching the same message and, and they're not listening? He was probably pretty bummed out. At this point, preaching for 23 years and no one's listening. Look at verse four. And the Lord has sent to you all of his servants, the prophets rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. So nobody listened to all of the prophets that the Lord had sent them. God had warned them. God was faithful in warning them about the judgment that was coming. And you know what? God is always faithful in warning us, in warning people. But our problem is that we don't always listen to the warnings of God. So many times we just ignore God's warnings. Now, in your own life, you can probably look back at those times when you were trapped by Satan or maybe you fell into the enemy's hands. And you'd have to admit, God warned me, don't do this, don't go there. You know, you were warned, but you just ignored the warning. I know many, it, it, it happened with me. God was faithful to these people. He sent his prophets. Jeremiah had been there for 23 years. The other prophets had been speaking to them as well, but they ignored the warnings that God had sent by all the prophets. Jeremiah says, you have not listened. Verse 5. They said, repent now. Speaking of the prophets and himself, they said, repent now, every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. They told the people, they were preaching to the people, hey, repent, you guys, that you might stay here, that you might dwell here. And if you'll serve the Lord, then the Lord will preserve you and he'll take care of you. And you know what? Many of God's evangelists that he uses today, they're still giving the same message. Repent. 
The same message that Jeremiah gave to Israel and all of the prophets gave to Israel. The message, the message is dealing with the social problems that exist in the United States today. Jeremiah and the prophets were giving the same message to Israel about the social problems that existed in their nation at that time. They talk about the problems that we have. That is, that the prophets, the today's evangelists, they speak about the problems that we have. And, and, and they give the reason for those problems, which is because we've turned our backs on God and we haven't listened. I mean, look at the things that are being promoted today. The laws that are being passed. Our children are being taught that they're, that they're, they're here by way of evolutionary process. That there's no creator God. So children have no sense of purpose for life except fun and excitement and, and, and living the good life. They're being taught that men can have babies. They're being confused about being male and female. And that same-sex marriage is normal. And boys and girls are sometimes born in the wrong body. Schools teaching about gender identity. I just read yesterday that... that it came out in, the, in a, I guess it's a newspaper, a newsletter. It's called the Tennessee Star. There are more than 130 gender, sexual orientation, and pronoun options listed on the San Francisco's Guaranteed Income for Transgender People program application. 130 genders. And the whole nation is suffering today because we have forsaken God's laws and ways. And there's rebellion against God. There's rebellion against holiness. They're making their own rules. We're being warned the nation needs to repent, but just like Judah, the United States isn't listening. Congressman Greg Stube, in opposition of the Equality Act, started his speech in the House floor on February 25th of this year by noting, and I'm quoting, he said that unlike most speeches you'll hear on the floor today, I am going to start with the truth. And then he proceeded to read Deuteronomy 22.5 from the Bible. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. He said, now this verse isn't concerned about clothing styles but with people determining their own sexual identities. He said, it's not clothing or personal style that offends God, but rather the use of one's appearance to act out or take on sexual identity different from the one biologically assigned to them by God at birth. He said, in God's wisdom, he intentionally made each individual uniquely either male or female. He said, when men or women claim to be able to choose their own sexual identity, they are making a statement that God did not know what he was doing when he created them. That's blasphemy. And then he finished with this. And whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. And we're seeing that today. But God said, if my people, my people... My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then, then I will hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 6. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. The other gods that he's talking about here are gods of pleasure, gods of power, gods of money and possessions. And these were the things that the people were living for. They were living for pleasure, to build the fortune. That was their life. God is saying don't follow or, or, or serve or worship them. These other gods. Verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Sin is always destructive. Always. And especially to the person who's sinning. You can't sin without sin affecting you and hurting you and sometimes others. So once again, the Lord is warning that sin is destructive. Sin is so destructive, it destroys you. There's not one thing that's good for you that God says you shouldn't do. God hasn't forbidden you to do one good, helpful thing. If it's good for you, God says, go for it, do it. But if it's destructive and it can hurt you and destroy you, God says, don't do it. And the only things that God has forbidden are those things that if you do them and you continue to do them, they will destroy you and your relationships and others around you. Sin is always harmful. And if you're rebelling against the laws of God, if there's rebellion in your heart against the laws of God, you're rebelling against your own good. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting yourself. The psalmist said in Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. Converting the soul. God will keep you from those things that will hurt and destroy you. Verses 8 through 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Now, notice that the Lord here calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. When Isaiah was prophesying about Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was to defeat the Babylonians, the Lord referred to Cyrus as my servant. This only means that that God is in control even of the evil empires or nations and rulers that come into power. God rules. But in the book of Daniel, we read that Nebuchadnezzar thought that he ruled. And he was exalting himself. And he was full of pride because of how great the city of Babylon was. And the Lord warned him, hey, be careful. Walk carefully, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be filled with pride. And about a year later, Nebuchadnezzar either ignored, forgot God's warning, whatever. And one day he goes out and he's looking over the city and he says, man, isn't this Babylon that I have built a great place? Well, 
God had to show him. Nebuchadnezzar went insane. And for seven years, he lived like a wild animal in the dew, eating grass, just like the oxen. And after seven years of living like this, he got his right mind back, and he acknowledged that there was a God in heaven who sets over the kingdoms those whom he wills. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's sovereignty. And so he refers to himself as a servant of God. So Nebuchadnezzar will be God's instrument to bring his devastation and destruction and judgment on these people, taking away their good times and their joy. Verse 11. And this whole, and this whole, and shall be, uh, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall, ser- shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This 70 year period is very significant. When the people of Israel were about to enter the land, the Lord told them every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year where the ground was not to be cultivated. It wasn't to be plowed. It wasn't you weren't to grow anything. You were just to let it lie. And God promised to do that, that they would receive great blessings if they obeyed his word. But he also warned them that there would be judgment if they didn't if they didn't obey his word. If they walked contrary to him, God would walk contrary to them. Even God foresaw that they weren't going to obey his command. In Leviticus 26, 34 through 35, listen to what it says in the New Living Translation. It says, uh, because again, God foresaw their disobedience. He said, then at last, the land will enjoy its neglected Sabbath years as it lies desolate. While, notice, while you are in exile in the land of your enemies for, again, not obeying his command. Then the land will finally rest and enjoy the Sabbaths it missed. As long as the land lies in ruins, it will enjoy the rest that you never allowed it to take every seventh year while you lived in it. God told the people that they would be in exile. That he would exile them, he would move them out of the land, and they would live in a strange country 70 years while their land has its rest that he told them to give it. Because 70 Sabbath rests were destroyed or disobeyed. For 490 years, the Sabbath wasn't kept. Then after the lost Sabbath years had been made up, Israel would then be allowed to return to the land. Listen to what Jeremiah said in verse 12. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that, and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. The prophecy is now history. God did what he said he was going to do. And at the time this prophecy was given, Nebuchadnezzar had already been exiled and Jehoiachin with all of his nobles, soldiers and craftsmen, to Babylon. Those who remained under Zedekiah, they were all paying taxes to Babylon. All the kings after Josiah were evil kings. Jeremiah had to pronounce final judgment. Nebuchadnezzar would come and destroy Jerusalem and he would take all but a small remnant of the people into captivity. And he's told them that that captivity, God said, will definitely last for 70 years. But that doesn't conclude his prophecy because now he gives them a picture using the figure of the wine cup of the wrath of God. And this is a figure of speech, the the, the cup of wrath that many of the prophets used. 
And, they, and, the, and the cup of wrath speaks of the sin of man as he continues in rebellion against God. Verse 13. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. This is a reference to a book that Jeremiah had written where he gave these prophecies against the nations and that book will be included in in the later writings of Jeremiah that we'll see when we get to chapter 45, verse 14. And for many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. He said he's going to repay them according to the works of their own hands. In other words, the Lord said he's going to be very fair in dealing with those people who don't call on him. He's going to repay them according to the works of their own hands. He says, you're going to get what you deserve. He's going to be fair with them. They're going to get what they deserve, which is justice. He said, but, if you, for, but for those who call upon him, he'll be merciful. And he'll show mercy. Thank God he deals with us according to mercy. But Jeremiah is saying, hey, it all depends upon you. Whether you want justice, the justice of God, or you want the mercy of God. If you want the justice of God, you're asking for the wrong thing. In other words, God, you know, don't, don't, don't dare ask God, give me what I deserve. <laughs> You'll go up in a puff of smoke. Because that's what we deserve. We're asking for the wrong. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, to me. Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now he's going to tell these nations who the judgment of God is going to fall on in verses 16 through 18. Notice verse 16. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of this sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations to drink whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem, they were the first. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Then its kings and its princes to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, a curse as it is this day. And then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all of his people. And so Jerusalem was the first to receive judgment. In 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter says, we read, we read there that, we, that, that the judgment must begin in the house of God. So think of it. If judgment begins first in the house of God, where will the unjust and the ungodly appear? So here, judgment starts in Jerusalem, the city of God. But then it's, passed, it, it, it's, it's to pass on to Pharaoh. Let's look at verse 19 again. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants and his princes and all of his people. Now, Pharaoh had a lot of mercenaries for his army. The people of Egypt eventually rebelled against the Pharaoh because of the mercenaries. And Egypt was weakened and it was conquered by Babylon. So the mixed multitude now, the mixed multitude, the mixed multitude people were those mercenaries in the Egyptian army that created the problems later on. Look at verses 20 through 26. All, here's, this is the, multi, multi, uh, the mixed multitude now mentioned in verses 20 through 26. All the mixed multitude, notice, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, 
Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, with one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak shall drink them. So all of these mentioned in verses 16 through 18, these were the mixed multitude. So again, Jerusalem was the first to receive, then the Pharaoh, then the mixed multitudes. In verse 24, the word mixed multitude is a different word than the mixed multitude that's used in verse 20. This, this word in verse 20 is literally motley people. And it might be referring to the Bedouin type, the Bedouin tribes, the nomads that were out in the, in the, in the people who still lived out in the desert. The word Shishak here at the end, it, it's, it's a code name or a symbol for Babylon. And, it, and we're not sure why it was used for them. Verse 27 through 28. Therefore, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. Verse 28. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. He promised the judgments of God were going to come and the people would say, Oh no, we're not going to take it. But God says, Oh yes, you are. You are certainly going to drink of this cup. You might think you can escape my judgment, but you can't. Verse 29, for behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city, which is called by my name. And you should be totally and you and should you be totally unpunished? You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he says, if I'm going to punish Jerusalem, the city that's called by my name, if I'm going to punish my people, do you think you're going to escape my punishment? If judgment starts in the house of God, he says, do you think you're going to escape my judgment? He says here, notice in 29, you shall not be utterly unpunished for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Now, at this point, Jeremiah's prophecy begins to cover the ages down through the period of the great tribulation. And he's now talking about the judgment of God that's going to come upon all the earth during the time of the great tribulation. Look at verses 30 through 31. Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes and against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. In the book of Revelation, you read about, you will read about the great tribulation and the Lord coming and roaring like a lion. Here's a reference to Joel again that also speaks of the Lord roaring mightily. It's like the shout of a lion about ready to destroy its prey. And as God is coming to judge, and the wickedness of the earth has just exceeded the boundaries of the Lord, 
He's going to come and he's going to bring his righteous judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. And he says, there's going to be a shout like people who are in the wine press. Now, one of the Aramaic words used to describe the wine treader's shout is usually used in a military context. So in these examples, the shout of the wine, the shout that's mentioned here, is a shout of violence, crushing of blood from the grapes or the juice from the grapes. We read that his judgments, uh, his garments, that is Jesus' garments, will be stained like he had been trampling grapes in the wine press as he brings his judgment and he crushes the nations because of their wickedness. And he will plead with all flesh and he will give those who are wicked to the sword. Notice that those who are wicked, notice, but he noticed those, but you don't read about the righteous. Because the righteous will escape. Why? Because our sins were judged at Calvary. Jesus took the judgments upon himself on the cross for our sins. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Now we talk about being saved. But saved from what? Well, we're saved from God's judgment that's going to come on this wicked world. We're going to be saved from the destruction, the desolation, and the sword of God that's going to strike the earth. You're saved from that. I mean, being saved, man, it is a great thing. It is a wonderful thing. You are saved from the judgment of God, from unrighteousness and corruption and the wages of sin. Verse 32 through 35. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a, like a precious vessel. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. Their dead bodies are going to lie on the ground. They're going to be like a pile of dung on the ground. It used to be that when they were in mourning, they would put a little bit of ashes on their foreheads. And when you see a guy or somebody walking around with ashes on their forehead, it was a sign that that person was going through deep sorrow. But now he says, man, they're talking about now wallowing in the ashes here. Not just a little bit of ashes on their forehead, but they're going to be wallowing in them. He says, you're going to be like a delicate vessel, a delicate glass. You drop a delicate glass and what happens? It shatters. That's the way God says you are going to be shattered. Now, Zedekiah tried to get away, but he was caught by Nebuchadnezzar. Down towards the city of Jericho, between Jerusalem and Jericho, the Babylonians caught up, the Babylonian soldiers caught up with with Zedekiah. And they captured him. They took him and his family to Nebuchadnezzar. And as he watched, that is, as Zedekiah watched, King Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's sons beheaded before him and then they gouged out zedekiah's eyes that was the last thing that zedekiah ever saw his sons being slain and then they led zedekiah back to babylon 
And he was there as a captive, but he never saw it because the eyes, his eyes were gouged out. The warning is that there will be no way of escape. No way to escape. The rulers are going to be judged because they didn't lead the people from their sin and iniquity to a righteous standing in God. Verses 36 through 38. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard. For the Lord has plundered their pasture and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Jeremiah is warning the people that this is what's going to happen. Earlier he said, turn to the Lord. Repent, serve the Lord, do what's right and you can be spared. You can live in this land. Even earlier than that, he said, God has set before you. Remember, the way of life and the way of death. Choose right. Choose right. And it's that way forever. Choosing what's right. So in closing, tonight, God is setting before you the way of life and the way of death. And you must choose which path you're going to walk. And there's no other path you can walk. There is no neutral ground. You're either going to walk in the path of righteousness, following after God and serving God, or you're going to walk in rebellion against God, which is the path of destruction, the path of sin, and you will face God's judgment. There are people who try to say, well, you know, that's the angry God of the Old Testament. I like the God of love in the New Testament. Well, you haven't read all of the New Testament then. Because it tells us that Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge the earth during the great tribulation period. And it's not going to be pretty. Because he came the first time as Savior. And for those who rejected him and didn't accept his offering of salvation, the second time he comes, it will be judge as judge. Jesus came to show you that God loves you. But that only makes when you rebel against God even more sinful. Here's God saying, hey, here's my son. I give him to you so that you can be saved from your sins because I love you. And then to reject that offering, that makes your sin even more sinful. And it makes it even less excusable because we don't have an excuse. If you want to know about the wrath of God, you need to read the book of Revelation because it gives you a clear picture and a lot of details about what's going to happen when God begins to judge the world in his fierceness and his anger because the the whole world is in rebellion against God and the things of God. You have the choice. You can surrender your life to God and live for him and ask ask him to come into your life and take over. And you can do those things that please him. And you can seek to please the Lord. Or you can choose your own path of unrighteousness. Living after the flesh. After the desires of your flesh. Shutting God God out of your life. Out of your mind. And going against the commandments of the word of God. But you have to know this. That one day we're all going to stand before God. And we're all going to give an account of our life. And if your name, my name, isn't written in the book of life, we will be cast into the lake of fire. If you want to be with the Lord tonight, he'll be with you. It's your choice. If you want to walk your own way, he'll let you. 
But if you seek the Lord, he'll find, you'll, you'll find him. He promised. He's only a prayer away. Father, we thank you so much, as always, for your word, God. And Father, we do pray that we would make the right choice, God. That we would choose Christ. That we choose the path of light. The path of righteousness that leads us to heaven, to the glory of God. Father, it's just a prayer. Lord, and for those who don't know you and maybe those who might be watching, it's just a prayer. A sincere prayer. Just ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to invite him into your life. To fill you with the Holy Spirit and to help you to begin to walk now in the newness of Christ. And to thank him for dying on the cross. And to help you walk with him every day of your life. Father, we thank you so much that we are saved. That you made this offering to save us, God. Because you know, you knew we needed saving. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning, Second Chronic, oh, Second, Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one through eleven. It's part one. Now we're going to read about God's comfort in dying for Christ. We've been again several chapters.